3: Welcome, everyone, to the Highly Relevant Podcast. My name is Jack Rico, and this is episode 19. We have some great guests for you today. My good friend, Carrie Keegan, host of Bravo After Hours. I worked with her at VH1 for years. She stops by uh, the podcast to promote her new book, Everybody Curses, I Swear, and Boy, Can She Curse. Also on the show, actor, producer, writer, director, and rapper Ice Cube joins me to discuss his new high school movie, Fist Fight. We also talk a little bit about the American educational system, why raunch comedies aren't offensive to people anymore, and his secret to making hit movies. And if you like Latin pop music, you probably have heard of the Mexican brother sister duo, Jesse E. Joy. They have a brand new self-titled bilingual album and we chatted at length about bilingualism in music and in this country. Look, it's a great show, so put your headphones on and if you're listening in your car, crank it up! We begin with a rap icon. Ice Cube really needs no introduction, but I recently discovered this interesting stat on him. All his movies, from the beginning to now, have grossed more than a billion dollars at the box office. How did he do it? I ask him now on the podcast. Ice Cube, welcome. Thank you. So you've described Fight as the type of movie you go to the movies for.
1: Why? Oh, it's just fun. It's uh, entertaining all the way through. The characters are uh you know, people you wanna see. You know, just being in the high school on the last day of school and everybody's going crazy. <laughs> it just seemed like, you know, when I was younger those was the kind of movies that that I would rush to. And um I believe Fist Fight is is in the same vein as uh Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Ferris if if Bueller Day Off or any of those hits that we kind of grew up on.
3: Did you ever see that movie, that high school movie, uh, Three O'Clock High?
1: Richie King definitely was a big fan of Three O'Clock High, who's our director. So, you know, I know a lot of inspiration was taken from that movie.
3: It's a great movie, man. Um, another thing is the humor in this movie is pretty raunchy. Why do you think that type of humor has resonated so successfully with moviegoers And how do you balance provoking the audience without offending the audience?
1: Um, You know, it's a fine line. I think people are, you know, kind of more adult than they, than than the powers that be give them credit for. When they try to do a movie like this and go PG-13, they really actually insult the audience because people know that in high school, the language is uncensored. So... right. That's why I just think you know we can get away with more stuff. I don't even know if we're getting away with more stuff. <laughs> that we're just going for it and not holding ourselves back.
3: It sounds a lot like the N.W.A. premise, though.
1: Yeah, you know, without being some false moral, you know, backstop holding holding people from expressing themselves. You know, I'm I'm just glad it's it's just way more freedom when you do an R-rated movie. And I don't know if this movie could have been done PG thirteen.
3: Probably not, right? Um, how was your high school experience in LA? Was it anything like what Fist Fight is?
1: Nah, nah, it wasn't that crazy. You know, we had a cool school. In my high school years, I was pretty much trying to go in full force into my rap career. You know, my school was pretty tame. I don't know if it, there's ever been a school like Roosevelt High. <laughs> um, you know, it's probably only in the movies.
3: Did you take your kids to public school or private school?
1: No, I actually had my kids homeschooled, you know. oh, oh, okay. Each had, yeah, each of them went to private, I mean, to public school for a little while, but I just felt like, you know, I can afford a better education for my kids, so I might as well go for a while, while I can afford it. It was better for me and my kids, because, you know, public school is, you know, full of distractions. Right. I was just happy to be in a position where I can, you know, have have my kids, you know, learn,
3: In a podcast interview with Snoop Dogg in April of last year, you had said this about entertainment. You said, quote, entertainment is a facade here today, gone today. How have you managed to defy that premise of fame? And what is the secret to the staying power you've had in Hollywood
1: all these years? I mean, I think it's no secret, you know, just do try to do movies that people like.
3: But that's so difficult. I mean, I think it's easy to say that. I think it's hard to do that, but the fact that you say it and do it, that's special, man.
1: The reason why it's easier to say than do is because when you get a when you do a good movie, everybody wants to put you in another movie after that. Right. So, you have to be disciplined because the money look good, the stars <laughs> look good, the studio look good, but the the script could be trash. And then people, you know, chasing that money sometimes end up doing two or three bad movies in a row off oh, the good movie they did. So now it looks like they're doing shitty movies.
3: But how do you know? How do you get that eye for recognizing that a movie's going to work? Because you seem to, to have the gold Midas touch. You've seemed to have it almost since the beginning of your career.
1: Instincts off of would I go see this? Would, would this interest me? Do we have the right people in place? And I just think, uh, you know, after doing Boys in the Hood, I guess I was so scared to get just typecast because I was just worried about just playing, you know, Million Doughboys. So I started to sift through through scripts a little more and turn down a lot of stuff that just wasn't right. I realized it's always better to wait for the right project.
3: I want to ask you really quick about The Players Club. 1998, you Mm -hmm. wrote, produced, and directed it. I'm curious in why you haven't gotten the book to direct again.
1: Well, I have, you know, that experience. It was extremely time consuming. I felt like I couldn't do any other projects because I was pretty much stuck on this one project for for over a year. <laughs> so I was like, man, like I, I can't be hung up for a year and not just do anything else but a movie. So then I just started to really get into producing and finding the white right directors but of course i want to direct again but i just think you know things have to slow down a little for me before i do that
3: well before i let you go i want to kind of do some speed questions with you to kind of get a sense of your interests what app do you use what's your favorite
1: app oh uh, man i'm um twitter world star <laughs> uh <laughs> you know espn uh nba
3: are you watching any tv shows
1: not a lot nah Not really.
3: I'm sure you've been saying some movies. Any movies uh, in the last year? Anything in the Oscar nominations that you've liked? Maybe some of the documentaries. Like
1: actually, still sifting through them. I've seen a few, but you know, I want to get through all of them. I still haven't seen Fences or Hidden Figures, or you know. So I just want to get through them all before I start picking.
3: All right, Ice. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time.
1: Okay. All right.
3: Pop music is in a war with reggaeton, fighting for radio airplay and listeners. But one of the pop bands that has risen above the fray is a Mexican duo called Jesse Joy. <laughs> They've released their first ever bilingual album and are nominated for a Grammy this Sunday night. They join me now on the podcast. Hi Jack. <laughs> Hi Joy. To you. I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. Where are you right now?
4: We are uh, in Chile. Uh, current, in the countryside. Yeah, currently live in the middle of, of I live uh, in the nowhere. middle of nowhere. Uh, taking um uh, like, like a day and a half off we should definitely be uploading photos of how we're trying to achieve the the phoners <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you very much
3: I mean we're very happy to talk to you as well well thank you so much first of all I kind of wanted to tell you how I discovered Jesse E. Joy I was watching uh, una cadena de televisión en español uh, it's called Mundos. have you heard of it? yes they played music videos and one day I was kind of flipping through the channels and there was a song called Llegaste Tú
5: Llegaste Tú
3: And I was like, oh my God, what is up with this song? So I kind of just stayed, and I saw the whole video, and I, I don't remember the last time I saw a Spanish language video, but I was entranced with you guys, with the song, with the video, and ever since that day, I started Googling you guys, and I became a full fan, and every album you've put out... I've listened from top to bottom including this new one that I want to talk to you guys about.
4: Oh, thank, thank you so, so much. much,
3: man. And it made it it made a great impression on me. So, first of all, I want to congratulate you on all your recent award nominations. Two nominations to the Premios Billboard. Thank you very much. Grammy nomination for Best Latin Pop Album, three nominations to Premio Lo Nuestro, plus you won a Latin Grammy back in November of last year, 2016. How long has it taken, and how much struggle did it take for you guys to finally become a legitimate force in the music industry? Hi,
2: thank
4: you. You're making us oh, thank you very much. The struggle could be—I—I uh, I don't know. Whatever comes with 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 changes and 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 trends in terms of uh, music genres or whatever, or or I don't know, not not having the right manager or I don't know, but but all that I think it just comes a second uh, a second or a third thing when the the main thing is uh, the music and that's what we are focusing on
3: you guys uh, began you guys are Mexican-American uh, you, your English is like perfect uh, yeah. you sing perfectly in Spanish you sing perfectly in English and it, w- there really is no offbeat I, I mean you guys right. kind of nail it you guys sound American and then you sound like a Latin band explain to the audience uh, on our podcast how you were able to achieve that where were you guys born and how do you how did you get the accent so well uh in your in your daily life
4: we sound american and mexican because we are both our mom's from wisconsin and our dad was from mexico city we were sort of a reverse migration our mom <laughs> uh, fell okay. in love with our dad and vice versa and um and we grew up in Mexico City, and uh, and it was it was kind of smart in a way. We we still haven't figured it out if, if it was intentional of of uh, of what mom did, but she wanted to keep it as co- as kosher as possible. And when it came to English and Spanish, she was like, "At home, it's either English or Spanish, no Spanglish."
3: Oh and, wow! Okay,
4: and it, it kind of makes sense. It- that we're that we're a, a little older because I mean Spanish we were going to learn yes or yes living in Mexico City listening to to, to I mean just to our environment and our friends uh, at home but uh, but with mom and dad the English if it, if it started with Spanish, it, it could have uh, ended up, ended up diluting a, a, a bit so that helped a lot and I think also mom. Uh, Creating this sort of bubble, maybe a her missing home a bit, and, family and or, or also the music that she grew up listening. She used to play a lot of Neil Young, Johnny Cash, Carol King, Arresta Franklin, um, uh, uh, CCR, among among uh, uh, other other uh, other stuff. Daddy used to play Pedro Infante, Los Pancho, Los Reyes. And then it got to a, then. Then got to a point where we're like, okay, and now we we can oh, we can also hear what we want to hear, like individually. And
2: now it's more like oh, there's other
4: music. There's <laughs> other music. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got I got really hooked into Coldplay and and although oh, the, the the way of brick pop, brick rock, and I uh, went to the roots of what they used to hear. I went, I went. from the two Oasis and went from two to the Stone Roses and then and then and, um, and also Joy discovering what she what she liked.
3: Your new self title album, Jesse Joy, is a bilingual album with twelve songs from your previous albums. From what I saw, uh, with some English language translations. Why do a bilingual album now, where you have so much success in Spanish? What is the strategy behind it? Is it To grow as an artist, is it to become a mainstream act that way you can play Madison Square Garden and in stadiums, in order to do that, you have to have a bigger audience than just the Latin audience? Was there research done that gave you this conclusion? I mean, what was the main driver behind the idea?
2: Well, from the very beginning, whenever we came out uh, in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, with our our very first album, we were always super, super um, transparent about being Mexican-American. And ever since the first song that we wrote, we were also writing in English. We just, I mean, it made sense for us living in Mexico City, being born and raised in Mexico City. It just made sense that our music, when, when, once we had the opportunity and once that our record label came to us and it became some sort of job, I think that it made, it made sense for us for our music to be shared first in Spanish. We, um, we always let people know that we were Mexican-American, just letting them know that, I mean, just as much as we write in Spanish, we write in English. And we waited this long because we were always we in And we, we've been not scared, but a bit, a bit um, sensitive about, about you know, having our Hispanic and Latin fan base think that they're a stepping stone or they're probably uh, right. part of uh, a different plan. We, we just wanted them to feel like, look, guys, we're from here, we're yours. But this is also a different side of us, and eventually, you know, just eventually, we would let you into a little part of that. And we waited we waited as long as we could. We've been putting that off for so long. But something very curious in this album, uh, particularly with Un Besito Mas, when we were revisiting the song, once we were putting the album together, we were like, you know what? This song Echoes of Love. Totally. I can totally hear it in Spanish, right? Like, yeah, definitely. So we rewrote it in Spanish as Echos de Amor. Same thing happened oh, wow. Album, okay, so it was
3: in reverse. You wrote it in happened. English first and then wrote it in exactly. Spanish. Same
2: thing happened. They were, for, they were originally written in English as Echos of Love and Helpless. And it was the song, More Than Amigos. So whenever we were preparing the album, Umbecito Mas, of course, our record label was like, guys, you're already in the studio. You might as well just record, you know, the vocals as well in English. We were so nervous. I cannot tell you, Jack. We were like, oh, okay, I mean, but don't don't get ahead of yourself. We're just going to record it because we're here. And when we are recording in London. Of course, our record label will eventually, or, you know, occasionally come and say hi while we were in the studio. They got so excited. They were like, guys, can we please just think of, of a way of sharing this? And we said, of course, and that's why it was released especially for the UK as a, a special launch there. Of course, it came out everywhere, but the fact that it was so from home, we don't want our fans from, from Latin America or from parts of Spain to think that this is something that we're now pursuing and forgetting about the Spanish. So whenever we decided to have an album, we said, perfect, let's make it a bilingual thing. Have them have them hear a little bit from where we come from, you know. Crash course. Our big hits in Latin America, some of our big hits from our career, and and just a little bit of to see what Jesse and Joy truly are, you know. For our fans now in Latin America, we were so 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 nervous. We were like, "crap, it's going to come out," and we were actually counting down. You know, we were on the countdown of, of whenever it was coming out. So we we were on social media, and it was so nice to see you know, this big fan base saying, this is amazing. This is also who you are. And to see all these fans that are just like us, Mexican-American, or they just have different uh, cultures, and they're also bilingual, and they're also, you know, just. I think that at some point, it felt like from the very beginning, we opened the doors to our homes. Perhaps there were a couple of, of, of closed doors they, they hadn't uh, seen through, you know what I mean? So now it's like, just another open door and there's another room you can you can visit but they know the whole house.
4: First of all, at the beginning we didn't have any fans at all. So we were like we want people to we want them to get to know right. If we do something, we're not gonna do it out of ambition. We're gonna do it out of like just because it feels right. So once once uh, started to feel like a like a right moment they knew we were bilingual. And also it was a funny thing growing up growing up in Mexico City, uh we don't look fully Mexican and also pronouncing words uh, correctly in English, it was kind of... I don't speak it was Spanish. Kind of, yeah, it was, yeah. Like, it was like, while living in Mexico City, it, it also had this uh, so, uh, sort of a, uh, a little bit of social bullying, but it'd be like, oh, well, he's pronouncing uh, McDonald's properly <laughs> instead of McDonald's, you know? So, so uh, for us, we're like, okay, let, 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 let's, do it in, let's do it in Spanish, you know, even though we're singing... In Spanish or fully in English, when we sing fully in Spanish, still some, some, uh, some of our, our culture in there, you know, and the influences that we grew up listening. So, so now, when we, we when we did this, um, for, uh, for the, for the UK, uh, initially, because that was, that was the idea initially for, for the UK, we were like, hey, let's, let's, let's give him a, like, sort of a crash course of just enjoy what, what we've done over those, uh, uh the last uh 11 12 almost 12 years now uh in, in 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 spanish and then show them uh some english stuff but at the same time we wanted our 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 spanish and hispanic uh or spanish-speaking uh bands we wanted them to also like the, the new well that's
3: what i was going to ask you about who is this album then intended for is it for Uh, It's obviously not for Latinos that only speak Spanish. This must be for a Hispanic American crowd, or maybe even a white, black American crowd, an international crowd that speaks English. But how challenging is it going to be to get radio airplay from these English language songs? So You guys are basically starting from scratch.
2: Well, I think that for us it was just a matter of sharing our music with more people. We honestly believe that music is a language itself. So for us to put out a bilingual album, which has songs that people already know, songs that people didn't know in that particular language. It's just something that defines us as artists, as individuals, as human beings, as Jesse and Joy, as brother and sister. And for us to just put it out there, it's basically getting a broader audience. It it doesn't matter if they're Mexican-American, if they are from Europe, if they are from South America, South Africa. I think that's the beauty of music that perhaps, in a language that more people understand, but that's why we also added the Spanish version of some of them, because even though they're in Spanish, it's like, for us, it was impressive to see what happened with Corre. You know, Corre was a song that that now we wrote a English, and that's a song that was originally written in Spanish. Now it's a song that we wrote in English to see. Just as an experiment, let's see what happens now,
4: you know?
3: And it's in the same and, album.
4: Yeah, just, just the fact of being in in, in, in London at the, uh, the top morning show in London, in the UK, uh, being introduced as... Uh, These this are Jesse and Joy. Uh, I mean, we, we don't get to interview many Mexican bands. I mean, maybe we were the first <laughs> one. So, so for us, it was it makes us feel really proud, you know? It doesn't matter if we're singing in English. They introduced us as brother and sister duo Jesse and Joy from Mexico City.
3: Was there any thinking of making Llegaste Tu and recording that song in English... Since it was such a big hit.
4: I'm
2: beginning to think that's one of your favorite songs. It's my favorite song.
4: My favorite song.
2: Well, you know what? Perhaps we should start on, a, on an English version just
3: for you. Oh, I mean, that would be a fantasy come true. You know what? I'm actually going to do a late night show. And I'm going to have you guys come and do that song in English. And then it'll go viral. And then you're going to have to put oh, it in your next album. Ready.
4: Oh, that's amazing. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.
3: (laughs) And then uh, my final question is, what are your expectations? Uh, What happens if it doesn't take off in English? Will you do another English album album later on, or is this just an experiment?
2: Well, I think that what happens is that we're going to continue making music in the same way that we've been... Writing it since the very beginning, whatever it feels right to write in English, whatever it feels right to write in Spanish, and I think that More Than Amigos is a perfect example. Our record label got carried away whenever they they found out that we had versions in English and versions in Spanish of the same songs, and they were like, "Hey guys, can you can you revert the version of More Than Amigos?" And we're like, "No, it, <laughs> it doesn't work like that." You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that Morte Amigos uh, explains perfectly what we are, who we are, what we come from. And it's like that that combination of, of how we grew up, how we see the music when we're making it. And I think that what happens now is that we are going to continue making music and hopefully we'll add more countries to our tour and hopefully we'll, we'll have audiences that perhaps don't speak our same language but speak our same music. So I think that that's our main goal. To continue reaching not
4: only people but their heart i have a I have a good answer for that, yeah, but at least in my head and um we never thought it would pick up for, and uh, for our music to pick up just and to go out of our parents' living room when we started writing songs and uh we i think we, we've been keeping it that way uh and just keeping it as real as we can and true to ourselves and and uh, just keeping it faithful towards the music and what we do, so uh, if it picks up, amazing. If it doesn't, I mean, we're still right now, we're releasing a new single in Spanish called soltaste, so uh, I think um, we're just going to keep on writing music, as you said.
3: Bueno, muchísimas gracias por esta entrevista. Uh, Being bilingual, hablando en español, speaking in English, I I just think it's the future of this country, of the United States and across the world, and... Uh, to be able to have an artist that kind of resembles this new generation of Hispanics uh, is so electrifying and so thrilling that you guys are doing this when Juanes doesn't want to sing in English. Romeo Santos, the bachatero, doesn't want to sing in English because either A, they feel that they can, or B, that their Spanish music will break through into the mainstream and it's so many different takes and perspectives of different artists, but I happen to think that what you're doing is the right way to do it.
4: Oh, thank
2: you so much, Matt. But let me just say that we also agree with you that we see that the future of of the United States being multicultural. And I think that all these artists that you mentioned, not singing in English, remember that for us, it's it's not about a trend. It's who we are. We're Mexican, we're American, and we cannot forget our roots. We cannot forget what we truly are. And it would be also something that my mom would probably hold against us for the rest of her life if we, if we don't also honor that part of us.
3: Thank you, guys. Thanks for being on the podcast. And I hope to see you uh, very, very soon and meet you guys. We
2: hope to see you soon in person. Thank you, Dr. Bar.
3: Cursing. People love to curse and people like to hear other people curse. My next guest has built her reputation on it, and her new book, Everybody Curses, I Swear, Uncensored Tales from the Hollywood Trenches, is that and so much more. Please welcome talk show host, author, comedian, actress, producer, entrepreneur, and my good friend, Carrie Keegan. Rico! (laughs) What is going on, girl?
5: Hi, it's Monday.
3: Where are you right now?
5: I'm in Los Angeles.
3: So let's talk a little bit about your new book, which, by the way, I am surprised. I did not see this book coming uh, for all the years that I've known you. So now, for for the people who are listening here on this podcast, Carrie and I go way back. I'm talking about like 2000. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So 2010, I was brought in by VH1 to host, um, to uh, be a contributor guest for the Critics' Choice Award like week show that was a lead in to like a week lead in into the critics choice awards and you were hosting this but this was like a one week thing right
5: yeah well so when we first started the show it was a pilot week that they did it was like a trial run and that was january actually i think that was january of 2011 and um Yeah. We, uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. It was the first time VH1 had done anything like that. And, um, I mean, it, it went swimmingly well, so (laughs) So much so that they brought it back. Yeah. Yeah. They
3: brought it back and we officialized the show's big morning buzz with Carrie Keegan. And we had a lot of fun. What are some of the great memories you remember about that show?
5: Oh God. So many things. Um, I mean, walking through Times Square at five o'clock in the morning to (laughs) getting to work. (laughs) I mean, some of the characters that I would run into, I I know it's not show related, but it was to me. (laughs) That's how I started my morning every day.
3: (laughs) Like the cowboy in Times Square all the time. No, no,
5: no. The cowboy is asleep at five o'clock in the morning. There is literally no one out except the people that are either still partying or doing the walk of shame. (laughs) And to be honest, those are the people that were (laughs) watching buzz.
3: (laughs) But you were, You were interviewing some of the biggest celebrities uh, on- Yeah, I
5: mean, we had everybody on the show. I'm really, really proud of how many people we were able to get on the show. I mean, Sylvester Stallone- um, Pitbull. uh, (laughs) Pitbull. We had, I mean, all of the legendary rockers came on. We've had Aerosmith come on. um, uh, Foreigner. Peter Gabriel, Foreigner, um, Joe Walsh. I mean, we even had uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. come on. And to me, that was uh, like the pinnacle of, wow, we we just got a Kennedy on. So much so that the president of Viacom found out that he was in the building, came down to our tiny studio on the set, uh, on the floor, you know, in the lobby of VH1. And hung out and watched the interview. Well, I remember and-
3: Tom Calderon, the president of VH1, used to come down all the time to hang out with you.
5: Well, I mean, this was Tom's baby. If, if Tom didn't exist, the show wouldn't have existed. This was his little dream thing.
3: <laughs> I remember seeing Sylvester seeing you and Sylvester Stallone, and it reminded me of this one moment that I will never forget, thanks to you. I was in L.A., and I said, you know what, I'm going to go hang out with Carrie Keegan. I'm going to give her, you know, a call. And you said, hey, why don't you come over to my office? And I said, all right. So I'm thinking just like a little office here in some sort of cubicle area, you know? And I walk in. And it's, like a, it's like a huge warehouse office. I, it was huge. And I'm walking in, and I see a, a, a statue of Rocky. <laughs> and then I walk in a little further down. I make a left through the doors, and there's this man on a sofa all in black, black sweatpants, black t-shirt, and looks like there was an editing booth. And I just said, Jesus, that guy looks really familiar. And as I'm walking in, I see Karush, uh, which is one of your best friends, and I see then you, and I said, there's a guy in there that looks just like Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> and you went, that is Sylvester Stallone. I go, no, it can't be. I, I, I'm not bumping into Sylvester Stallone like this. He goes, no, you want to meet him? I mean, seriously, I was like, no, you're joking. Wait, are you <laughs> tight with him like that? And slowly he starts coming over. He says, Jack, here, let me introduce him. Hi, Sylvester. This is Jack, Jack Sylvester. And that was it. I was like, my life was made right there and then. And what I was not expecting, Carrie, was for him to go on a 20-minute like, monologue uh, telling stories about uh, Rocky his great movies, the Rocky Broadway musical, uh, and he was cursing. And he, he basically cr- did a stand-up comedy routine for us. I had no idea he was that funny. How did you and Sylvester Stallone get to be such good buddies?
5: Well, let me, let me give you a little backstory. So NGTV, um, we took over this building in Beverly Hills um, that is basically, it's a, it was like a three-story Oh, um, bank. It used to be a bank. There was a vault ah, in the, okay. in the basement and everything. And that, that ended up turning into our, our vault for all of our tape content and everything. Um, so, you know, it was a massive building and it was all, you know, you, you've been in there. It's sort of like, When you walk in the front doors, time just ceases to exist. Yes. There's no light that comes in. It's like walking into a Vegas casino. You have no idea where you are. You have no concept of what time it is. There's a bar. The music is pumping. And you never know who you're going to run into.
3: (laughs) Right, 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 right. It's like a totally really good dream like on acid.
5: (laughs) (laughs) So Karosh is actually my business partner. And he, he and I sort of designed this building to be exactly that. It's a place where employees can come. They can be productive, they can have fun, they can be debaucherous, but at the end of the day, everybody just enjoys being at work, which is a concept that most people don't have.
3: It doesn't (laughs) exist, barely. No.
5: (laughs) So we built this little one-stop shop. Um, And a few years into us living there, yeah, we live there, a few (laughs) years into us being there, Sylvester Stallone's production company was down the street and apparently that building got sold so he was looking for new space and he came over to us because we had met him before he came over to us and said hey you guys have a huge building do you you think you could spare a couple of offices like we just want to we just want to hang out with you guys (laughs) so so crazy we ended up renting out some space to them and his production company and uh, god we were together for I mean, I guess it's going on about seven years, so incredible. Yeah.
0: incredible. So I've been
5: Sly's landlord for a very long time, and I <laughs> can tell you this: every single day, I have the exact response that you had. I hear his voice, and I instantly go into like, "Oh my God, he's here! Oh my God!" Sly. Yeah, but you're now and, like a
3: friend slash fan. I mean, and, and, and it's- it
5: never ever gets old. <laughs> I can listen to that man tell stories all day, every day, and I am in heaven. And he in curses fact, when and- so well. <laughs> yeah, he does. And Kurosh and I, when we first met, before we were business partners, we bonded over the fact that we were both obsessed with old Sylvester Stallone movies all the Rockies, all the Rambos, even Oscar. And like, Militian Man. All of them. Like, everything. I just, I love Sly. And, and then now I get to call him my friend, and I, that's pretty much one of my favorite things in life.
3: <laughs> um, speaking of cursing, your new book called "Everybody Curses," I swear, uncensored tales from the Hollywood trenches. How did how did you spin this off? How what was the genesis of this book? Because I remember in all the conversations I've had about future projects that you were going to do. A book was not one of the things that, uh, I guess, was immediate for you. How did this come about?
5: When I was in New York, Hiroshi and I were sitting down over lunch, and we just started kind of, you know, you just sort of reminisce about all the things you've accomplished over the years, and we just go, oh, God, you remember that one time with Colin Farrell, and oh, my God, you remember Emma Stone, or oh, you know, and we started like, oh, that would make a really funny chapter in a book one day. Well, maybe it has to be today because if I don't write these things down now, I'm going to forget them all. So we started writing down. How long did this take,
3: this process take, of writing this book? Because I've thought about doing something like that. And everybody tells me, I know you want to write a book, but don't do it. It's like torture. It's long hours. And, and How was the process for you of writing this? Did you write everything? How long did it take?
5: Well, I, I will say that that is the truth. It takes a long time. Um, but I would never discourage anyone from writing a book. You should absolutely do it. The thing about, you know, I went to a publisher and they they bought the idea. So the problem was that I just put myself on a time crunch. If you're going to do it yourself, you don't have that much pressure. You just write it when you can write it. Right. But my problem was I was still doing a live daily show. And it's really, really hard and time-consuming to do a daily live show and then try and find time to sit down and concentrate on something that you did 10 years ago. Agreed. You know. Um, so the hardest part for me was just finding the time. So I, I did end up h- hiring a writer to help me, um, and she was able to put down – thoughts for me in order. But to be honest, the bulk of it really was me just having to go back and rewatch videos and remember old stories and put things in order and um, just sort of remember why I was trying to tell the stories and not just tell a story. You know, it's easy to say, oh, look at this interview. But it's another thing to say, this is what happened because of this interview. Or this was the behind the scenes.
3: I know that this might have sounded like a great idea for you and Karosh when you were talking about it initially, but When you walked into the pitch, I'm dying to know what this pitch was like. And how, they, how did you frame it? Hey, it's about cursing and celebrities and so much more. And they're like, yes, or...
5: Well, th- that part was actually not as complicated because No Good TV was already a big success. When we launched No Good TV, we were one of the first partners on YouTube, and we have over 2 billion views online. So walking in, we already had some credibility. By the way, for, you,
3: to- for the podcast uh, listeners who don't know what NGTV is, No Good TV... Uh, It's one of the the first junket-like interviews uh, with a host and the celebrities where instead of being PC, everything is off the books, and you can curse and be as normal and debaucherous, (laughs) and it is one of the most fun interviews with celebrities you'll see on YouTube anytime, and I'm sure the two billion views is only increasing more and more. I've seen countless hours of those things because there's a lot of celebrities who I never thought (laughs) <laughs> in the context of cursing, and when they curse, my eyes just pop. I can't believe he said that. Oh my god! How is this going to haunt him for the rest of his life? So very well, so addicting. That's,
5: I, and it's funny because that's what happened when when Karosh and I first started NGTV. We were like, you know, we want to we want to do celebrity interviews, but how do we make them different? Because at the time, you know, back in like two thousand five or whatever like everybody was pretty much doing the same thing you know you'd turn on any tv station it was always tell me about your character or what inspired you or you know just these questions that you've heard a thousand Very times cliche, yeah well and i never felt like i ever got to know these people outside of this media treated questioning and so our thought was well, i'm just going to talk to him like i talk to you so i want to know what george clooney feels like to have a beer with well guess what i'm going to walk in and go What the F's up, George Clooney? And he's going (laughs) to break it down. So, I mean, what I learned very quickly was that the more honest and true I was to myself, the more honest and true they were in response to me. Well, that's what I was going to say. How did you
3: get them to feel comfortable enough? I mean, everybody from... Uh, Stallone and Rogan and everybody. I mean, Rogan probably will you know curse at the you know <laughs> at the drop of a <laughs> dime. But but the other celebrities, the the ones that you probably thought you couldn't get to curse. How did you make them comfortable? Did you have to talk to the just before and say, hey, look, this is the type of show we are. We uh, suggest that they do curse and feel comfortable. How was that whole thing?
5: When we first started, it you know it takes a lot to get into those junket scenarios. You can't just call up and they approve you. So we ended up, we started doing music first and music is a little bit more free with those kinds of things. Bands obviously are more apt to swear and just be themselves. But when it comes to TV and movies, people are definitely more guarded. They, I guess they have more at stake. And to um, yeah. Yeah, so what ended up happening is we started doing red carpets first, and those things are a little bit more free. People tend to be a little bit more um, Loose. off the cuff, yeah. And and then, you know, we we would always tell people, I would always, always start my interview with, Hey, by the way, we're uncensored, so you know, have at it. Do whatever you want. And then my <laughs> line of questioning is is always very on point with the message of whatever they're they're promoting. Um, but at the same time, it's in a fan slash uh, vulgar <laughs> um, you know, vocabulary. So they I was never asking personal questions. I was never getting into their private business, but at the same time, I was getting them to be so comfortable being themselves that sometimes you would see a side of them that you didn't ever get anywhere else but it wasn't necessarily them talking about who they were dating but you felt like you really got to know them after that couple of minutes
3: What would be like the main appeal for this book? For those people that are, that maybe don't know you yet and that are interested in reading the book, why should they buy it?
5: Well, a lot of the comments that I've been getting so far are, oh my God, you're just like me. I was bullied in school too for this, that, or the other thing. Or, oh my God, I remember using my first curse word in front of my family and, you know, they freaked out. Or, "Or God, I always wanted to know what what it felt like to sit across from Justin Timberlake or, you know, whoever. And so I think, what you'll get from me is you'll get to know who i am but also know that there's someone else out there that feels just like you and i live vicariously through all of these people all of my fans so when i'm in a room interviewing these celebrities i'm doing it for you
3: (laughs) that's so great Uh, what's your favorite part of the book carrie
5: oh god wow that's like picking favorite kids i don't know (laughs)
3: Well, you know everybody um, does have a favorite kid. they just don't say it, but
5: <laughs> oh no, Jack <laughs> um, I think you know most people when they interview me about the book, it's usually about the celebrities cursing, which is obviously the most fun and the funniest. um but to be honest, there's so much girl and women empowerment in the book that I'm really, really proud of that, and I want people to read that um um there there's a chapter called emancipation declamation and it really is talking about um how much women need to stand up and help each other and especially in this business but in real life too i mean but in this business i've come across so many women that will you in, in a way almost sabotage other women or try and keep other women down but that doesn't help it doesn't help them and it doesn't help us and if we all stick together And if we all help each other, God, we can get so much done. And we need voices like that, too. And just looking at the Women's March that just happened, I mean, God, what a proud moment for women. We all came out, we all stood up, and we all said we need to be heard. Now, if that had happened a couple of months ago, we might not be in that situation right now.
3: Hey, by the way, I'm just curious about your reaction, your thoughts. When you heard the Billy Bush, Donald Trump uh, video— when you saw it and you heard it. Uh, you're someone who's probably used to this type of language, but as a woman, when you're hearing it from Trump, he's running for president, what were your initial reactions and thoughts to it? Ugh. Yeah,
5: right? <laughs> um, I was completely disgusted and mortified at first. And then I started thinking about it and I thought, God, how many times have I been in that exact situation? and What would I have done? But the problem was, as a woman, it's almost expected for you to brush it off, to go along with it, to um, to just sort of let let the guys be the guys. Um, and, and I think that that's really the bottom line of what the problem is right now, is that why are we accepting this kind of behavior from anybody to anyone ever? Right. We all need to learn how to respect each other a little bit more, maybe a lot more. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the the whole outcome of that situation. I I don't, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of people that were trying to keep Billy on the air. I, I, I don't know that Billy did anything necessarily incorrect because it was his job to keep that. And in that situations man-
3: like that, and I'm sure you know, is when you're with a celebrity and they're a guest on your show, there is that sense that you kind of have to toe with them, kind of just go with the flow. And if that yeah. means... And obviously, all of this was private. That's what they thought and a lot well, of... Well,
5: but the argument there is, and I was going to say to a point, because on the bus, it was one thing. As soon as they got off the bus and they both continued that ridiculous behavior with the insider joking, right. And you could see how uncomfortable she was because she didn't understand what was happening. That's where things get unfair. That's where it's totally uncool. But on the bus you know, it's private. They weren't supposed to be on air. That was just a conversation that was happening that wasn't supposed to be on camera. But as soon as they got off the bus, uh uh-uh. it's not okay anymore. Tell
3: me a little bit about your new show, Bravo After Hours with Carrie Keegan. I ha- I saw an episode the other day.
5: Okay. So here's the deal. Um, Bravo After Hours is all the fun celebrities from Bravo, the Bravo-leberties, they call them. And I go out <laughs> and <laughs> They take me to their favorite bars or their favorite restaurants or to their, you know, wherever they like to hang out and mm-hmm. have adventures or whatever. And I go out with them. I, I basically I party with them, so you don't have to.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. But I do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on the podcast. The name of the book is "Everybody Curses." There I swear, go. uncensored tales from the Hollywood trenches, and I can tell you. If you're looking for something different, something with a lot of flavor, this is the book you need to pick up. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on.
5: Jack Rico, I cannot thank you enough for having me. I feel like I need to end this the way that I ended it began. Every conversation with you is. Your actual name is Rico,
3: and that's a wrap for our nineteenth episode of the highly relevant podcast. I want to thank Ice Cube. Can't believe I just said that. Carrie Keegan and Jesse Ejoy for being on the podcast this week. I hope you liked it. And if you want to reach out, I'm on Twitter at Jack Rico Official. That is at Jack Rico Official. Also, please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. We're now on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. See you again next Friday on another episode of Highly Relevant.